Hey everybody, welcome to the Real Estate Addicts Podcasts with your hosts, Mark Savatsky from Choose Boston. Dan Rubin, HRV Homes. Ray Herto, HRV Homes. And we're here today with our guest. Ricky Beliveau from Volney Capital. Awesome. So this is our second episode. It's great to have you here, Ricky. Let's just start out with a quick intro. Um, first thing I'll just say is Ricky is one of the most generous people I know with his time. He's just very giving and very willing to send that elevator back down for the next guy. So tell us about yourself and your company and how you kind of got here. I started Volney Capital back in uh, 2010. I graduated from Northeastern University. At that time, I started working in finance, and I knew that I wanted to get into real estate investing. But first, I had to get a job so that I was able to qualify for my FHA loan. So I wanted to do FHA owner-occupant. After working for six months, I was able to get my first FHA loan and purchase my first rental property. I've grown my rental business over the years following, and uh, about four years ago, I started doing condo conversion projects in East Boston. The business has grown since then, and now we're uh, doing development projects uh, all over the city. How many, how many rental units do you currently have? Uh, we have 60 rental units in Boston and Providence. Awesome. So what was the first rental that you had, and how'd that go? So the first rental I did was a college rental property near Northeastern University. It was actually when I was in college, I took real estate finance and I did a paper on Mission Hill and purchasing a rental property there. And I realized that the cash flow was could you know could have a lot of great returns. So when I purchased that first property, it was very similar to my paper. So it was a 4,500 square foot three family. I did the work myself over a year's period. I renovated the whole thing while living in the building. One of the tricks that I did on that property is that I renovated the second floor. And once I was finished with that, I moved the third floor tenants into the second floor. And then I renovated the third floor, moved the first floor into the third floor, and then repeated it. So that allowed me to lower my carrying costs throughout the project. Instead of having a vacant building, I was able to only have one vacant unit throughout the whole process. So in about a year's time, I was able to cosmetically renovate the building and take a nine-bed, three-bath to a 12-bed, six-bath and increase the rents from 2100 and 2300 to all the units renting for around 3600 I still own that building today, and it uh, rent rolls almost 13000 a month. How, how did you finance it? Uh, so I did FHA. Purchase price was 930 At the time, the max FHA loan you could get was 860 So I had to put down a little more than 3.5%, and I got the funds from a gift from my mother. So my mother had inherited some funds from her great uncle when he passed away. And so I approached her with the project. I detailed it all out, kind of like going to an investor. Which And I recommend any newbie who's listening, if you're going to go to your parents or to a relative for money, don't go and just throw the idea out there. Come with a formal proposal. Show that you've run the numbers. Show you know what you're doing. Though You're much more likely to get a loan than to just come out of the woodwork and say, hey, can I have you know 50 grand? It's like if you show why and the return and when you're going to get it back to them, they're much more likely to give you a loan. So I went to my mother. She agreed to loan me the money. So she gave me about 150000 that I used for the down payment, the renovation. I used all my own money that I had left for the rest of the renovation as well as credit cards. So by the time it was all said and done, I was about 50 grand in credit cards, but was able to then get the rent roll coming in to pay those off as well as my finance job. Was there a time back in the beginning when you were getting your hands dirty? Were you in there with sort of a hammer? So I didn't really do any of the, any uh, like carpentry or anything like that. I did some tiling. I did all the demo myself. Nice. So my wife and I demoed the, everything that we were going to demo. So we didn't do a full gut. So yeah, that was the first project. Um, turned out really well, and I still own it to this day, and it's definitely one of my, it's my largest asset. So when did you start Volney Capital? Right out of school? Lame what is Volney? 
Well, Volnay is the town where my family originates from in France. So I actually, although I say it started in 2010, 2011, I didn't create the brand Volnay Capital until I was into my third development project. And at that time, my architect came to me and said, you know, now that you're doing condo conversions and you're selling them and you're, you should really create a brand. So it was actually, that was the time when I, uh, I blogged that whole uh, project on Bigger Pockets. And then that's kind of what ended up getting them to interview me on Bigger Pockets was the, how that project went on their site. I have to, I actually have to admit something. For the first at least year that I knew you, I thought your last name was Volney. I still get called Ricky Volney a lot and I get mail all the time. Ricky Volney. Would you legally change your name to Ricky Volney? <laughs> I've mentioned it to my wife and she gets very angry. I also thought about naming my next child. Having Volney as a middle name. That's a power play. She, that, she didn't that like that. Is bold. She didn't like it. It's like, what was the football player? Um, Cinquecento or no? Uh, dos, <laughs> Ocho Cinco. Ocho Cinco. Hey, here's another question for you. We were talking a little bit about social media before we started going live here. I'll start with a quick story. A kid grew up playing soccer with a kid who never wore the black soccer socks, right? Like he always wore yellow socks. And when I'd say to him, Robbie, what's up with that? He'd always say, no one's ever going to remember you if you're wearing the black socks. So... Ricky, you have a wild haircut. You're always going for something a little different, maybe the shades on Insta. Tell us a little bit about uh, how you've built your brand and how you've used social media to do it. Right after I started the company or the idea of Volney Capital, I started an Instagram account and really started doing, uh, you know, full court press on trying to build a brand. And so how many, how, sorry, how many years ago was this? So that was in 2015. And at that time, so I started doing all my content on there and started building that. And I felt that, you know, I'm a big proponent. I tell everybody, if you're not going to promote yourself, no one's going to promote you. Don't ever feel that you're, you know, you shouldn't be putting yourself out there. You shouldn't be showing, it's not showing off. Like it's self-marketing. And if anyone's like, oh, you shouldn't be doing that, they don't know what they're talking about because no one's going to come out and pr promote you if you don't. And you have to get yourself out there. So a lot of people get nervous, so they don't want to do that. And it's, it's not bragging, it's self-promotion. And it's really important to build a brand. So I realized that early on, and then I decided that I was going to try to build Volney Capital. As I was building the Instagram following, I was sharing a lot of other people's stuff and then sh showcasing other people's work, stuff that I liked. And it started to get deteriorate on what I was sharing. And then that's kind of what's turned into the rest of the social media business was I decided that if I was going to feature other people's work, it shouldn't be on the Volney Capital page because, you know, it's really not what I'm creating. It's other people's work. And then that's what started the kitchens of Instagram, bathrooms of Instagram, and the rest of the accounts was because I wanted to feature other stuff that I really liked, but I didn't want to do it on my own page. I was also gaining followers on the Volney page all over the world. And there's no, I don't really gain anything in Boston by having followers in Australia. So I felt that it was important to break it away. And then that's kind of what formed the rest of the business. What year was that when you were able to kind of capture that kitchens of Insta, bathrooms of Insta? So it's been about two years. How many accounts do you actually own and maintain? Yeah. Do you, do you want to plug them all? Yeah. So we have kitchens of Instagram, which obviously features kitchen designs from around the world, bathrooms of Instagram, exteriors of Instagram, bedrooms of Instagram, and designers of Instagram. And they're all of Insta. Were you one of the first to do the of Insta thing? Or did you see that somewhere else and kind of grabbed it? Because now there's of Insta everything. So I honestly think I was one of the first. I was playing with a bunch of different names when I thought about doing it, and it kind of just came to me. It wasn't that I saw anyone else doing it. I really just made it. And now you do. You see, of Insta is just, there's everything. And then you said, so what's the total 
following. So we're almost at 1.5 million right now across all the accounts. And do you still see consistent growth throughout all the accounts or have you seen a plateau over the last, you know, because obviously Instagram's become pretty saturated. So Instagram's algorithm is, they are very good about making sure that you're active and your growth really does have to do with your activity. So on the accounts that were active consistently, so Kitchens grows at around 10,000 people a week, bathrooms about the same. Some of the other accounts where we're not posting as much and we're not as active, it's a slower growth. But those accounts are so large now. And as long as we're posting at least once or twice a day, we'll see those continually grow. So you're saying that, so the, the ones that are growing, the kitchens and the baths that are growing about 10,000 a week, you're posting at least once a day or multiple times a day? Sometime between one and three times a day. Okay. And is that, sorry, is that a combination of stories and posts or just posts? So if, so if you were to like read, there's all the different blogs and stuff that talk about the Instagram algorithm and all, cause they, they do release it. It's like, a, it's hundreds of pages. You can read in about all the details when they release the al- new algorithms. Oh, Ray, there you go. Um, but <laughs> you can see that there's people that summarize it though. You don't have to read it. The people that do posts and you can just listen to a 10 minute thing about it. And they say, I think it's like three posts per day will increase your accounts viewing uh, on just post on your account and then the stories also and then uh, the com- you know commenting liking replying to uh, people's comments on yours and then every comment with four more words or more counts anything under four doesn't count there's a bunch of different things so if you do want to really grow an Instagram following you should listen to those people who talk about the algorithm this is obviously a major endeavor and and I guess for our listeners some questions that would come to mind are how much time does this actually take and then are you still doing this all yourself or do you have help now? I still run the Volney Capital social media and then I run the Kitchens of Instagram account. My sister oversees the rest of the accounts and then we have uh, someone else helping now on the designers of Insta account. All this, the sales and all that stuff on the accounts goes through my sister. So she handles all the um, any type of paid sponsorship or anything like that. And then any type of product placement um, or like relationships with con- with uh, different distributors, I, I negotiate those. Nice. Would you say it's a full-time job for her? It could be. I think that there's definitely an opportunity that if she wanted to and you know run with it, there's enough demand out there where we could make it into a full-time role of negotiating contracts and, you know, and everything. But uh, as of right now, it's not. Okay. How has social media impacted Volnet Capital? Do you sell your condos through social media? Have you seen a real sort of business reason to keep spending the time and resources on it? Right. So I think the Volnet Capital page definitely plays a huge role. There's so many agents who have brought clients through my units, even pre-construction, who have been following me for years. And they're like, we know him. They, they feel like they know me, even though we've never met. And they're like, we know his product. We know what it comes out like. He's, he's putting himself out there. And I hear them telling the client that they, they've, you know, they've seen my work and that's how they follow me and all that. So it definitely helps people be more comfortable when buying something pre-construction that they know it's going to turn out really well. Because that's a big leap for someone when they're putting an offer in when it's still under construction, that you're going to deliver something that's still a high quality and you're not going to cut corners. So you're saying they can, they, obviously they can go on and they can see your prior work and they can see the kind of the day-to-day activity and follow you and see how you know, nice of a product you produce. Exactly. They can look back at old work. They can see the project as it's been progressing. And 
buyers love it too because some of the my 27 Suffolk Street project they bought like four months ago and we were just framing both buyers who have been under agreement have been following on Instagram and they watch the stories and they, they comment as I'm doing stories. Do you ever get nervous? You ever post something where a buyer writes back and is like, a mistake Monday and you're like, ooh, maybe you should not have put that on the internet. I had exactly that happen. I commented on a post with the wrong unit number of the tile going in. And they wrote, they said, they're like, wait, that that's not the tile we picked for unit two. <laughs> and I wrote back, I was like, oh, Oh, sorry. That was it's unit three master to them, not to the world. But then I for, I'm like, I have to be more careful about that because if I have buyers following me, and then I post something about their unit and it's wrong, they're gonna immediately freak out. And they did. They're and I just messaged back. Yeah, it's really interesting how social media has changed kind of the landscape of development and of buyers kind of due diligence on who they're buying a product from. I mean, we only have like 2,500 followers. We're just nothing. But I think all of the buyers from all of our condo units are now following us and they comment on stuff and they tell their friends about us. It's, it's, it's a really cool platform. Well, it answers a really good question, which is always, how do you really vet a developer? You're going to buy something while it's being framed up. You know, you're buying off plans and specs. You're not a seasoned construction professional. What else can you do? Certainly look back through their history. I mean, Ricky, are there other things that you do? Do people ask to talk to buyers from previous builds? Or Yeah, so we have had people ask for references to talk about how it is to work with me. And so there are people who have bought from me before that have agreed that if I do need to provide their information, I can. I try not to bother previous buyers, but some have volunteered. And I said, I have done it before. Uh, so if it comes up, I do offer that. But I try to just, you know show them my work, show them pictures and say, this is what you'll get. But I do have that ability. Now, obviously, you're still paying the buyers, brokers, their commission? Yeah. So we still pay all buyers, brokers, their commissions on it. But if we are able to sell it direct, you know, we're able to save the, you know, the two to 3% on the seller's agent's fee, which, you know, on these projects, you guys know, as you start to get into the high, you know, multi-million dollar sellouts, two and 3% can be big money. Oh, yeah. Do you actually allow buyers to customize on your projects? Do you have a set list? Do you have certain things that are off limits? How do you handle that? Yeah, so if someone gets in really early on, so if we're just framing and they're coming in that early, I do open up a lot of opportunities for them. So on Suffolk Street, for example, someone wanted a gas fireplace and we weren't planning on doing gas fireplaces, but we hadn't even done the gas lines yet. So I was able to just talk to my plumber, get the price, you know, quoted out and was able to add a gas fireplace. Typically, I have a spec sheet and I really only let them choose cosmetic changes. So, you know, this is what you'll get if you don't make any changes. And that would be tile, paint color, fixtures, um, you know, anything like that. But I not we're not moving walls. We're not adjusting closets, anything like that. We're sticking to just the cosmetic decisions. A lot of this stuff's really easy to allow. Like, for example, the floor color. Right? We're always going to install the same hardwood. It's going to be either red oak or white oak, four-inch planks. But to stain it, I'm not doing that until the end of the project anyway. So if a buyer wants a certain color, it's, they love it, and it really doesn't affect me at all what color that they want to do their floor stain. Um, so right at the end, I say, what color do you guys want to stain your floors? We put some samples down, and they pick their color, and they feel like they get so personally attached because they made that decision, they can brag to their friends about it, and it really doesn't affect my budget at all or my timeline at all as long as they get those decisions in soon enough. How do you enforce that? Because Dan and I did a project pretty early on. We actually let them customize the layout, which we would never do it again. <laughs> that was a very, very hard lesson learned. 
If you're if you're going to allow a buyer to customize something, how do you put the time limits on there, and how do you kind of enforce them? Because it's at the end of the day, they can just kind of do whatever they want, I suppose. And I'll add one thing: Are you ever concerned that a buyer may not come to closing? Something might happen, and you've now customized a zebra in their unit. I am. So that definitely is a concern. For Mark's question, with my buyers, although they have free reign, I'm definitely very involved in the design choices. So I try to guide them towards a certain design. Even if they bring something to the table that I don't think will work, I tell them that and I really push them away from it. So you look at our designs. Although we've everyone's customized the past 15, 20 condos we've done, they all semi-look the same. And that's because I'm able to direct the buyers into a design that I think will look really good. There's definitely been some stuff I don't share on social media because the designs come out in a way that I'm like, I, I don't want to feature this as my own work. But I'm usually able to direct people into designs that, that work. And how do you get them to make decisions? So yeah, the way I do it is, so as soon as they go under agreement early on, I make them send me photos of kitchens and bathrooms that they love. Right, so this is immediately when we're way out from the time of making decisions. I say, send me your your dream kitchen. What do you want it to look at? Send me your the master bath. What do you want that to look like? And so they're really not picking individual items; they're picking the design, right? And then I'm picking the item. So, say example, they send a bathroom has a bunch of marble, and then I can bring the product to the table that I know will look good, and then I build the bathroom. So it's not them actually picking item by item; it's me taking a picture and creating a bathroom. How early on do you start marketing your properties? So lately we've been starting the marketing process right when mechanicals are finishing. I've sold them earlier than that before and it just it creates a, a very long sales process that you don't really need. After mechanicals go in and you're start getting ready to insulate, that's a perfect time to start selling because that gives you a good lead time for picking of finishes and stuff before you need to. Um, if you sell any earlier than that, you start to get into the point where it's like it's you're talking about six, eight months before you're going to be ready to close. And it's just a really long runway. But I also do my sales like for, you know, with the units I have coming up in Eastie right now, because I have units that are about to be done in the next month, I'm going to start pre-marketing Eastie units because I can show them a finished product in person. And if I can bring someone and they can touch one of my units and they can see it in person, I'm going to be able to loop them in and get them to buy. So I, you know, for my East units now, I'm going to start selling sooner than probably I typically would because I want to bring them over and show them Suffolk. And Suffolk Street, the two units that went under agreement toward my project in Eastie. So they saw my units that were done in Eastie and then they bought at Suffolk. So my goal will be show people Suffolk and get two of my four under agreement in Eastie off of my Suffolk condos. Suffolk condos being Chelsea? Chelsea. Yeah. So it brings up a good point. So for those listening out of town, Chelsea's sort of a more emerging market. Uh, it's certainly a less mature neighborhood. And Ricky was one of the first to sort of go over there and really push condos. I The conventional wisdom, in my opinion, has always been it's really difficult to build condominium product if your sellout isn't $400 a square foot or more. Because a two by four doesn't care if it's in a luxury building or an affordable building. It, you know, there are certain costs that are just fixed. So, um, Ricky, you kind of were the first to uh, go through that. And uh, thank you because <laughs> trailblazer. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. So, tell us about that process and uh, how it went. Honestly, it wasn't in that intentional. I was approached by some real estate agents who had purchased a property in Chelsea right on the water. They said that they kind of gotten gotten robbed by their contractor. They were in trouble and they were like, would you want to buy this? 
I went and ran the numbers, looked at it. I was like, the view is incredible. It was pretty awesome. It was only two units though. There were four stories tall each. And I was, I said, there wasn't really anything you guys can do. I'm not able to help you. I uh, thought it over a little bit more and went back to them and said, actually, if you give me six months to get the town to let me turn it into four units, I'll consider it. So I did a zoning contingency, which allows you to go through the process of getting it approved for something else. Got it approved for four units and then I was able to close. But I think I looked at it that it was so close to East Boston. I was able to leverage those sales and move it right across the water. I think when I started in Eastie almost five years ago now, I was doing the same thing playing off South Boston. So the buyers who were buying back then were priced out of Southie and they wanted something different at a lower price. And then Eastie was the opportunity. And then Chelsea's now the same thing. It's these people who would prefer to have bought an Eastie, but they're getting a, the same quality for less money one more minute down the road. Do you see Eastie becoming Southie? So Eastie's got a long way to go. I mean, Eastie, although it's the prices are climbing and it's it's really coming around, there's there's still thousands of units in the pipeline. And I think in the next five years, we will see it make the turn to another South Boston. But uh, there's a lot of development to come. I think the biggest thing that's happening over there is the amenities catching up. You're starting to see nicer restaurants opening, uh, grocery stores, um, nicer grocery stores, I should say. Yeah, I think that the... A lot of these, you know, when you're early early on, the development is all residential. From a developer's perspective, that's really where the money is. And there's not a demand yet to fill the commercial. So people don't want to build commercial space because it's, really, it's pretty much written off by the lender at a zero. So when you go to get your loan, if you present a commercial space, if it's not in a high desirable area, at least from my experience, my lenders have told me that you to run the commercial at zero. When you do that, it starts to make the projects not look as profitable. So that's when you start to do first level residential instead of retail. So then that takes a while for the neighborhood to catch up because there's a lot of projects that have gone up over the years that really should have a first level retail, but end up being all residential. So how has social media impacted relationships with brokers? When was the last time you used a broker to sell any of your stuff? Randomly, I've sold different pro- like different properties with uh, agents, but none really. Where do you see social media going in the next three to five years? It's been a pretty crazy ride for social media, even in the past like two years. If you look at Instagram and other like accounts, like no one was doing that, right? It was it, it was it's crazy to see now. Every single real estate broker and every office is doing exactly what I was doing like three years ago. And now everyone's doing it. It's like the thing to do. Like you have your Instagram following, you do your, you showcase yourself, which is great. It's everyone's doing it now. So now that you get to find the next thing. So like now what's the next step for, you know, in social media. And like, I don't know, it's honestly, I'm not sure. I think it's, you got to be ready to pivot. I think that's one thing that's important in, in life really is, is understanding when things are changing and being able to adjust. Um, I can't tell you what's next, but you know, be ready. Do you think it's hard for people starting out now to create an Instagram account and grow their following if they haven't already been established? Having some people working for me now that are starting new accounts and watching how hard it is to gain followers because there's so many people to follow, I think it's uh, it's a whole new battle now to create content and get you know get followers. Uh, I'm noticing even on my Volnay page, like back when I did it two years ago, 
I went from, I started it and within like a year I had 18,000 people following it. And then now I've been pushing it again the past, since January, I made a statement I was going to get back on the account and do Volnay, you know, push Volnay again. And I, for now it's been three months of me doing that. And I've only gained a couple hundred followers. Do you think that's a function of Instagram kind of weeding out a lot of the bot accounts? Because I mean, I see it on our page. You see it everywhere, right? All of a sudden, I created an Instagram account and there was no purpose to it. I just created an account. All of a sudden, overnight, I had 155 followers, but they were all just fake accounts. Yeah. So I I think that Instagram is definitely improving uh, the way their algorithm works and all that. And it's it's kind of, it it worries me because Facebook, uh, so I own an event company in Boston and we do large scale parties and bar crawls. And I've been doing that since, you know, 2006. And I use Facebook uh, to promote those. And early on, Facebook hadn't figured out how to monetize and hadn't figured out all all the value they had. They were still figuring that out. You could promote and everything through there. You could gain followers. You could gain traction on events without spending anything. Now, if I post something on on my business account, I'll, it will be seen by like nine people if I don't pay. And so they, you know, so my thing with Instagram now is the more and more they learn and they see what a business account is and they understand the value that they're providing you, they're going to make you pay for that value. My concern with Instagram though is I've started to realize that although they're making you pay for, you know, to get exposure and you can get views, those don't translate into followers. So they haven't done a great job yet on figuring out ways to uh, allow you to promote yourself and pay for views on your account, but those people aren't turning, aren't transitioning into followers. So you're talking about sponsored posts, sponsored posts. So say you spend money to promote a video of your say project, and then you spend $50, you know, on how many people actually are going to follow you after that video is promoted? And from what I've seen, for the $50, you're not getting enough return. I Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been experimenting on sponsored posts for some of our stuff just to kind of see what the quote-unquote return on followers is versus how much I'm going to be spending monetarily. And it it really depends, you know, it, it varies. And, you know, you like you said, you might get, all of a sudden you might get like a lot of likes on a specific post, but that doesn't necessarily translate into new followers. Right. So I'm, I think that that's, my concern is that I've, as I've been doing test spending on sponsored posts, it's not transitioning into f- actual followers. I think it's putting out good content and being active on the account is still the best way to gain. Let's get a little more technical just with Instagram, just focusing on that. How important are hashtags? How important is it to be consistent with hashtags? Do you have some kind of uh, analysis software that you can use to see what's trending, what's not, and what gives you the best bang for your buck? So Instagram allows up to 30 hashtags currently uh, per post. You can use any hashtags that you you select. So they do, uh, their algorithm does recognize repetitive hashtags. So you should change hashtags, which we're not good about doing, but you should be changing your hashtags based on the posts. So you shouldn't be just always using the same. It does recognize that. The hashtags you select, if you're going to do a good job about your hashtags, you should be using the high traffic hashtags. But there's also the other opinion on that is that those hashtags also fill up quickly. Right. So there'll be if you're using a high traffic hashtag, that will become your posts become obsolete very quickly. If you're to post on something that's not as popular, you might be the top post for a long time. Um, Almost like Google AdWords, if you've done pay-per-click marketing and, and we've 
tried that briefly, and they were talking about it was a trailing trailing something or other, basically having a long tail, and, and I think that's what you're saying. Exactly. So you, do, you don't necessarily care that it's a lower volume hashtag because it will be at the top of the list or exposed more. So you, you can mix it up with a certain inventory of hashtags, and like you said, you're, you're still working on trying to mix them up a bit more, but that's kind of the takeaway. You think it's better to go with those longer ones or, or just mix it up all I would the time? Say, I would say I would make um, do a, have a mix of hashtags you save in your notes and then you rotate through them. And I would do, say, 15 of the ultra popular ones and then 15 that are more lower level ones that you'd actually be one of the more popular posts that stay at the top of that hashtag for a while and then kind of just rotate through them uh, and you know, keep, it, keep changing them up. Other quick questions. Sorry, sorry to keep asking all these questions. Ray loves Instagram. <laughs> Ray loves the technical aspects. No, this one, this one's not as technical. So, do you tag anybody famous to see if you can get their attention? I definitely have tagged different people on uh, posts. I, I tagged, I tagged Grant Cardone the other day <laughs> after our event. Um, but no, we've yeah, we have randomly, I'll randomly tag people. You know, I think one thing that we've that's helped us on the kitchens accounts is that grows really quickly because a lot of times someone will reach out to us who already has 150,000 Instagram followers and will say, hey, can you feature my kitchen? Yes, of course. And then I say, please share us on your story and say you were featured on Kitchens of Instagram. That's part of our request. We'll share you, you share us. And when doing that, our, then now our account just got shared to their 150,000 followers and it kind of like you know keeps the cycle going. So do you actually feel that as in, if you were going to be spending money on quote unquote advertising instead of spending the money on sponsored posts through Instagram, do you think it's better to spend money on an account that has hundreds of thousands of followers to be featured on their page? You know, so we haven't done any, I mean, obviously for our kitchen's account, we sell posts. So people pay us to be on the account. And I think that, that you would definitely get more You'd get more followers. Sounds like a biased answer to me. Yeah. <laughs> well, how much you char- do you mind me asking how much you charge? So it really, it's not expensive. I mean, we're charging fifty to a hundred dollars a post, something like that. And in the scheme of things, for that fifty dollars, number of followers that you'd get is way more than fifty dollars you'd get paying Instagram. I, I agree. I mean, I personally, I mean, I'll be honest. We we've posted on kitchens of Insta and bathrooms of Insta recently, and I think between the two, we've probably got between. Two and three hundred new followers. Hey, I got a question. You mentioned um, our event, so that was the Boston Real Estate Guild. It was a it was a meetup. I'd say mostly intended for some younger um, developers, people interested in getting into it. I guess the question is, you spend a lot of time and energy on stuff like that. You know why? You know, I think that giving back and you know helping out newbies and like trying to help people build their businesses that. I just feel good about it. Like, I think it's good to give back. I also think that this business is all about networking, right? And so the more people I can meet and more people I help, and if I'm their first person that they think of, even if I've only met them once, it can, you know, I help them get started and then they come across a deal that's too big for them, right? And the number of things that have come across my plate because I, maybe because I sat down and introduced someone to agents, I had coffee with them, I introduced them to lenders. And then next thing you know, like a year later, they're reaching out to me about something. And honestly, I might not even remember who they are, but I took the time, had coffee with them. And then from that point, they're bringing me something that could be an opportunity. So it's like, yes, it's like, it's a win-win for both of us. Um, You know, so I'm helping them get started. And then 
they're able to help me down the line in some way. And, you know, some people might think I'm crazy. They're like, oh, that's, you know, that's a long, that's a long play, but I've seen it work. And I think that real estate is personal, right? This is a person, this is a person to person business. It's all about networking. It's all about people, you know. And so I think the bigger your circle is, the more opportunities you're going to come across. I'll just say I've I've tried to follow a lot of that same logic, like the 5149 principle, where you give more than you take. And I've met a lot of kids, and I can't tell you how many meetings start with, I've met your friend Ricky. I had coffee with Ricky last week. This is a broker who hasn't done a single deal yet, or an investor, in quotes, who hasn't bought a property. And I'm meeting with them, and they're always, I, I always hear, you know, Ricky was so generous for this time, so. On your posts, I've seen a lot of recent activity on acquisitions and such, so it seems like Volnay is scaling uh, pretty quickly here. How are you managing that growth? I think one thing I like to you know remind people, so as you guys heard earlier, it's been a long process. So you know this didn't happen overnight. It started in 2010. I've been in the real estate business now for, you know we're coming up on nine years of building this. And it's been a slow process of adding projects, one per year, two per year, three per year. And then now it's at the point where I, I really am confident in everything I have going on. So I feel like the, the financing side is in really good shape. My team for my, from the construction standpoint, so EJO General Contracting, who's my partner uh, in, in, in most of these projects now, so they uh, are able to really handle and scale this business. We have great subcontractors that are all cruising along with all those things going. And uh, I really feel it's time to take this thing to the next level. Um, I also am looking at Boston over the next three to five years. And I think we are in great shape. I think Boston will be awesome in a great place to buy real estate for the next three to five years. I don't see any type of downturn. And I really want to capitalize on those next three to five years. Um, I think you're going to start seeing East Boston, Chelsea even. They're going to see all these developments coming through the pipeline. They're going to turn back into, into Southie or other neighborhoods that are starting to be more and more anti-development. And so now's the time to really you know, push the gas and try to get projects uh, approved as well as you know, get projects under construction. So I see this as really a great time to build a business in the city. Uh, for some, any of you who are, are in Boston, I do think you need to be careful. I think we're seeing lots of trends across the country where the real estate markets have uh, peaked and are starting to come down. We're seeing the slowing of sales. So if you're not in a major city or in the major city of Boston, I think you need to be careful. But from what we're seeing in Boston with the growth, with the growth in business and, the, and everything that's occurring here, I think we have plenty of demand to uh, equal out to the condos that we're putting onto the market. You guys ready for a little lightning round? Sure. Lightning. <laughs> so, Ricky, um, if someone had to tell me one strength and one weakness about you, what would it be? I would definitely be my strength is my uh, networking abilities. Leverage that into building a business is definitely a strength. Um, weaknesses, I'm headstrong, whereas if I make up my mind, I'm not going to take anyone else's opinion. I think there's definitely times where I should have listened to others. And if I had taken the time to listen to others, I probably could have avoided some losses on, you know, so whether it's a project that someone says this isn't worth you taking, you know, time to run with, buying, you know, spending money on architects, spending time on attorneys. And I've, I've ended up doing both. And then the project doesn't go anywhere. And it's if I just listened. So taking the time to, you know, sometimes listen to others is definitely something I, I struggle with. What's one thing you'd like to see more in real estate development and one thing you'd like to see less of? 
I really like to see people be more uh, like passionate about the finishes and the design. I think I see there's there's way too many people that are putting out cookie cutter projects, and I want to see people really take pride in what they're putting out there, and not just be uh, be happy with putting out the same stuff as everybody else, but being really proud of putting out a finished product that they can share and be you know proud of to build a brand around. And one thing that I I really don't want to see is I I'm really I really don't like seeing these projects that are being done where people are uh, selling stuff for a premium price and they're not doing a premium quality work. The prices have gotten really expensive in the city right now, and so I understand why this is occurring. But if you are overpaying on the purchase and you're doing uh, a half job on the renovation and then you're passing that along to your buyers, it's just going to be bad for you in the long run uh, when you're selling something that isn't to the quality that it should be. People need to be really careful about the product they're putting out. What's your greatest success that you've had? And then what's your biggest, we'll call it lesson learned? I mean, I still have to go back to my, the first, you know, first project. You know, if it wasn't for, you know, that project, I wouldn't be where I'm at today. If it wasn't for the loan from my mother, I wouldn't be where I'm at today. If you look at the return on that project, it's still my largest to date. Uh, I mean, I paid 930 and it appraised for 2.3 recently. So it's, you know, still my largest uh, asset. You ever going to sell it? Never will sell it. <laughs> you don't win at Monopoly by, by selling your pieces. No. Uh, I would sell it if, if someone offered me more than it was worth to me. All right. I do agree you should never sell unless the offer comes in that's significantly more than it's worth in your eyes. And you think you can turn that into something that's worth more. Well, something of a tangent, but we're sitting at a table with all guys who do condominium conversions, which means that we always pretty much sell our product. Like, I think everyone would like to do more rentals and less condos, but it's a very capital intensive business. Going back to the, you know, not listening to people's advice, you know, I definitely, I've had a project where I put money down as a non-refundable deposit. I spent money on attorneys and architects. And then the project got rejected by the zoning board. They wouldn't even let me present it. And so that was really just me not paying attention, should have done more research. So I ended up losing my deposit, attorney's fees and architect's fees, all that's something that probably could have been avoided if I had, you know, taken the time to do a little more research. You know, good for you because there might be a small hole in your boat, but you didn't sink your ship. And that's important. Hey, last question. What, uh, to borrow from Guy Raz, uh, what percent of your success do you attribute to luck versus hard work? So there's definitely a lot of luck that's come into into play. I think that starting when I started in 2010, 2011, where the market had been plateaued and you know down, and then it was grown since. We had almost 10 years of growth. That's completely lucky. The fact that my mother inherited the money is a lot of luck. But along with luck, I think that there's everyone gets lucky at some point, and you know a lot of it comes down to what you do with that opportunity. So although I was really lucky that I was also able to take that luck and was able to turn it into something. So one thing that I think everyone needs to be prepared for is, you know, be ready to act when luck comes across your plate, right? So when you do get lucky, don't just let it pass you by. Like when you get that chance, make sure you grab it and make sure you run with it. Um, Too many people are like, might've seen something that that was an opportunity and let it go. And I think that you just got to be ready to run with it when luck does come. Awesome. Nice. So why don't you give everybody one more uh, plug for all of your Instagram accounts and how they can get, interact with you and get in touch with you if they if they want to. Yeah. So if you want to reach me, let's just uh, you can find me at volneycapital.com or you can uh, on Volney Capital on Instagram. You can send me a DM. 
Hey, thanks so much, Ricky. Thanks for joining us. And thanks everybody for listening. If you could go on and give us a plug or a a good review, uh, wherever you're listening, uh, we'd greatly appreciate it. All right. Thanks everybody. Catch you on the next one.